Greetings, my name is Gene Vagelan, in for Jason Miles on this very special Christmas break pre-record. So we are not coming to you live, we are coming to you from the past, and that will be the topic for the day, the past. We'll, we have a very special guest with us today to talk about the English Revolution, a revolution that is often forgotten by many on the left. Uh, but before that, I would like to remind you all to like and subscribe. Your support helps us advance the channel and allows us to bring to you more content, more shows, and more information. So as I said, today's topic is the English Revolution of the 17th century. And of course, this is an important political moment in not only British history, but the history of the development of modern capitalism, of the modern world. This was something well known to Marxist liberals in the ninth, as in the 19th century, the importance of the English Revolution. In fact, if you go outside of the British Parliament, you will see a statue of Oliver Cromwell, which is kind of interesting because Oliver Cromwell was the leader of the Republic, or as we called it, the Commonwealth, that replaced the Stuart monarchy for a brief period of time in uh, the 17th century. And so the person I wanted to bring on today is a friend of show. It is the writer and author, Steve Paxson, who is at present, I believe, working on something to do with the English Revolution. So I'd like you all to give a TIR. Welcome to Steve. Steve, welcome back to TIR. Hi, good to be here again. So you're, you're currently, you know, your new book is out. Uh, we talked about that, uh, How Capitalism Ends. Um, That's right. Uh, we talked about that last time you came on. But currently, I believe you're working on something to do with the English Revolution. We've discussed this uh, off air before, that you know, you've been thinking about the importance of the English Revolution. So could, could you like give us an outline of what you're working on and why you think the English Revolution is important? Sure. I, I think... Um... On both sides of the Atlantic and, and basically everywhere, people kind of underestimate the importance of it and the, um, the kind of historical significance of it and also what we can learn from the, the English Revolution. Most people in England, actually, if you said the English Revolution to them, that phrase would just mean nothing. They would, they, they would assume you're talking about some future event. Um, so I guess I suppose to, to get into the, the background of it a bit, um, if you go back to the way Marx looks at, at the development of capitalism, um, he uses the term revolution in, in different ways. So in, to some, in some ways in his kind of theoretical work, he talks about the, a revolution as being the transition from one economic structure to another. Um, and then in the later cha chapters of uh, volume one of Capital, he talks, it goes, it goes into quite a lot of detail about that process, that transition from feudalism to capitalism happening in England kind of from 1500 really up until his lifetime in the in the 19th century and elsewhere though he uses the term uh, revolution when he's talking about the French Revolution for example he uses the term just the same way as everyone else does to mean the kind of political seizure of power so there is some inconsistency there in in how uh, the term revolution is used at all and I don't as far as I know I don't think Marx ever uses the, the phrase the English Revolution but he does talk about the transition from feudalism to capitalism as a revolution and he does talk about that process in England then in the 1930s you get um, Christopher Hill who's a Marxist 
Marxist historian at Oxford. Uh, he writes a book called The English Revolution, and he's referring to the events of the 1640s, uh, the civil wars and the regicide, the execution of Charles I. And he's really, um, he's kind of saying, look, guys, this is like the French Revolution. This is the same process. This is the emerging bourgeoisie seizing power from the, the feudal aristocracy. Um, and and that, that leads to a lot of backwards and forwards, and a lot of arguments among academic historians from the 30s right up until kind of, I guess, there were those arguments still going on in the 80s and 90s. They, they've kind of faded away now because despite what people on the right would, would have you believe, British universities aren't any more controlled by Marxists than, than American universities. They're, they're and Marxists the, do, the dominant paradigm, I think, that's kind of emerging within British academia now is to call it the War of Three Kingdoms. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so it's framed, uh, so people are aware, it's framed within the context of uh, the, uh, a push towards absolutism and the difficulties of that the English monarchy was having welding together its, its, its empire, which was made up not only of England, which was a discrete legal entity, but the kingdoms of Scotland and Ireland as well. So there's very much this kind of discussion about the consolidation of, uh, of power, which is not necessarily, you know, uh, it's not doesn't necessarily kind of disprove the English Revolution theories, but it thesis, but it does definitely shift the balance of power, uh, the balance away from uh, discussing class conflict towards this question of state consolidation and the consolidation of power. And you know, so people who are not at all aware of the English Civil War, what we're specifically talking about is the rebellion against Charles uh, the the. Of the first, Charles the first was uh, the son of uh, the Scottish king James, who who became the king of England in the uh, as England and Scotland were unifying, and as in many places in Europe, uh, there was a gradual kind of push towards uh, reducing the power of the aristocracy and the autonomy of different elements of society. It pushed towards this absolutism, royal absolutism, which was a kind of phenomena. Of Europe in the early modern period, but unlike in places like France, where you saw the emergence of a strong uh, absolute monarch, in Britain there was a rebellion against this uh, tendency, and you know the monarchy was overthrown, and Britain became briefly uh, a republic under uh, you know basically under a military dictatorship for a while. Uh, sure, yeah. So, so. Um... So, so Hill is the first one really that causes the English Revolution. And you're right, the, the War of Three Kingdoms, I think um, Scottish and Irish histories, um, school histories have been taught as the War of Three Kingdoms for quite a while. Um, in England, we're, this period is always called the English Civil War at, at school and, and still is. And, and this idea that kind of Marxist historians hold sway in, in academia or anywhere else is, is, is shown to be nonsense by the fact that it's nearly 100 years ago that Christopher Hill came up with this kind of Marxist interpretation and, and it's basically been ignored by, by, you know, outside of academia where there are arguments about it. But certainly, um, you know, in, in mainstream history, we still talk about the Civil War. And, and yeah, and the War of Three Kingdoms is a, is a kind of another way of looking at it. And, and that's very much about the, the nationalist elements rather than the class elements. 
Um, so I mean, what I'm trying to do really is to draw all these threads together. So I think it's it's really valuable to see the revolution as this long process, this long transition from feudalism to capitalism. Um, there is there is an element there where there is some resistance then from people who say, well, that's not really a revolution. That's like a transition. But then you, I don't care. Call it a transition if you like. But then you only get into the same set of arguments about what that means as, as we're already having about what revolution means. Um, the, the main thing, I think, is certainly from a, a historical materialist perspective, the significant change was the, the long process, the technological developments that started around, started to gather pace really around 1500 and uh, it permitted um, an increase in um, productive capacity. Uh, there was kind of an agricultural revolution. So we went from a situation where basically almost everyone worked on the land and, and only really produced enough food for themselves. Um, in 1500, for example, 75 percent of English people worked on the land. So each person is producing enough agricultural product produce for themselves and a third of another person. But once you start to get technological developments where you can get more productive capacity coming out, then you can free up more people not to work on the land. And that that gives you a, a, a material condition, which means that the development of other industries and eventually the factory system and things like that start to become possible. The fact that they become possible doesn't mean that they're then inevitable. You then still need moves to, towards that. But um, various kind of global and national um, developments may mean that those things become attractive to certain landowners. And a lot of landowners start to move away from this very traditional customary society and see the opportunities of actually going kind of into business, treating land as, as a, an investment rather than a status symbol and preferring to have employees that they can either move from one workplace to another or just just lay off when they're not when, when they don't need them and and take them on when they do need them prefer to that to having kind of serfs that are tied to the land and, and that they've got to they've got a kind of a feudal obligation to make sure that those people survive to some extent and so you get these lot these long uh, it's very long-term process it goes on for a couple of hundred years and it's it's basically technological development enables different economic and social arrangements between people and and then those create better that enables people to create a, even more technological development which provides more productive capacity and this kind of thing starts to build up like a kind of snowball effect and it gains a lot of momentum and the people that are kind of making the most money out of that obviously are gaining a lot of economic power and the gaining um, power to actually do things but what's holding them back is that the political framework is still this feudal kind of aristocracy is pyramid with the aristocracy and the, and, and the crown at the top. And the crown resists all this and, and the state resists this, this situation. Um, there's, there's a lot of talk. Um, so there's an enclosure. Well, maybe we should talk about that later, actually go into the details a bit later. But, but the main point at the moment is that um, the crown resists this kind of um, this this process that's happening that's this social and economic transfer transformation and technological development is resisted by the hierarchy in the old order and that's what comes to a head in 1640 with the civil war which is really the kind of emerging bourgeois interest trying to trying to kind of throw off the shackles of this feudal political state um, and and, uh, and i think so, you know it's uh, i think when we talk about the uh, Stuart monarchy, and you know this uh, this uh, feudal uh, political uh, state, 
you know, their objective is maintaining st the stability of society, uh, which means resisting new technology might, that might disrupt old existing ways of life, um, you know, granting monopolies, all sure. these kind of things, which and the things that the closer people are to the monarch in that hierarchy, the more they have to lose and the more they resist. And it's people kind of on the periphery of that. There is there is some sort of element of kind of an independent peasantry peasantry with a kind of a kulak class rising out of that. But the real big kind of movers and shakers in that situation are people on the periphery of the kind of uh, the feudal hierarchy who've got some land and but but aren't really making aren't really close enough to the to the top of the pyramid to be getting that much benefit out of it and can see something better that they can do and they start doing this stuff and it, and, and it's that that gets um, and there are also there are also defectors from within the kind of closer to the center of the ruling class sure. as uh, as well and you know interestingly enough there's also an ideological divide between this with those kind of emerging capitalist farmers, as well as kind of progressive elements from within the, you know, state elite and state apparatus, uh, you know, centered around the practice of Protestantism uh, between nonconformism uh, and uh, the state religion, which is a kind of, you know, it, Anglicanism is the state religion of Britain, but under the Stuarts, there wasn't very much a shift to to Catholicize it to a certain extent in terms of the way that it was practiced. So an emphasis on ritual. I mean, this is one of the things I always remember from Christopher Hill is like he compared the sermons of the uh, right. nonconformists to the Anglicans, whereas the Anglican church was a lot about um, ritual. Uh, the the nonconformists had far more intellectual content in terms of uh, their preaching so you know this th this political conflict is also being overlaid with ideological shifts taking place sure. within uh within and even in conservatism because you get a someone like thomas hobbes who you know is kind of a monarchist but instead of making the usual monarchist argument he start he tries to make a materialist argument for monarchism so this is a really like fundamental break that's taking place at this period Sure. I think it's, you know, it's although we can discern these kind of broad processes and 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 I kind of tend to split into two. There, there are two broad um, historical periods from one from 1500 to 1640. Mm -hmm. And then there's this kind of political upheaval from 1640 to 1688. And then the second period is, is after 1688. And, and the real difference there is that before the 16 before 1640, the state is backing the feudal the, the state is really the personified by the crown and that's backing the feudal resistance to change but after 1688 the state is really in control of the emerging bourgeois interest and is really backing the you know the, the development of capitalism um but the, although we can we can see these kind of broad periods it's really important not to think that, that you know not to think of this in really black and white terms it was a really messy period and although you know the civil war had had people there were, there were a lot of historians when christopher hill started framing this and saying look this is the bourgeois interest fighting against feudal lords you had historians coming along saying well what about this guy he was on the wrong side according to you he had he owned a big farm or he was in you know he was a merchant yet he was on the, the royalist side or whatever but it's it it was very messy and, and as you say religion was tied up with a lot of it 
And religious convictions aren't things that people can let go of very easily. So even though they might politically or economically look like they're on the wrong side in their in the way they view it, they're on the right side because of their religious views. And no, so not just that, not just that, but like revolutions in general are often triggered by defections from within the ruling class. Sure. I mean, this is, you know, the American Revolution was made by landowners and country lawyers. The French Revolution was triggered by a revolt of the aristocrats. Yeah. The Russian Revolution, Russian Revolution was, made, was made by petty bourgeois and bourgeois uh, uh, elements. You know, so the notion, you know, that, you know, these revolutions are always just like one class versus another class in a very crude way misunderstands, you know, very often the extremely prominent role of elements from within the existing ruling sure. class in being involved and in leading the revolution, because very often those are the people who have the time to contemplate the, uh, you know, the, the the situation, they have the luxury of, you know, being able to uh, do these uh, kind of things, you know, I think there is sometimes a little bit of a, a crude mischaracterization of like what 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 one means by the bourgeois revolution in that, you know, that like all the bourgeoisie got together and overthrew all of the feudal aristocracy when, you know, that is certainly not the real historical process, like you said, sure. messy. Sure, and, and often in the bourgeois revolution, a lot of that consists of um, feudal landowners just changing their, the, putting their operations on a more capitalist footing. Mm -hmm. They're not, you know, they're not actually rising up against themselves they're just they're just seeing that you know there's there's a different way to go and that, that maybe it might be in in their interests because of their class location if they can if they can change the way their operations work then they might benefit more from that so often it's kind of it, it's a process of it it's not it's not a question of one group of people overthrowing another necessarily it might it, it's sometimes just a group of people changing the way they behave um, and changing the, the, the kind of the basis of their ownership. Um, but I think the, the um, e even after sort of 16, so 1640 was the start of the Civil War, 1642 was the start of the Civil War. Um, King was executed in, King Charles I was executed in 1649. The war rumbled on for a bit, but then as you've mentioned, we had the Interregnum, the Commonwealth, the Republic, led by Cromwell, who, but he kind of, so he had towards the end of the civil war he had basically turned on the the left and the working class of his supporters and established when he established himself as the the lord protector he he basically had eyes on on becoming a new monarchy really he's starting a new dynasty even to the point that when he died he he ensured that his eldest son succeeded him Mm -hmm. And and something that's is kind of interesting about that as well is that his eldest son was quite incompetent and this is kind of and he buggered off. <laughs> but also he had a younger son who was a really competent kind of politician, strategist, diplomat, military general. But it couldn't go to him because that's not how monarchy works, is it? it has to go to the, I mean, and, you and know, was really kind of looking for the best successor. He would surely have gone to his second son, but he was what he was actually doing was trying to replicate the kind of the. the the way that monarchy works by by handing everything handing all the power over to his eldest son but it was a different type of monarchy in the sense that sure, you know yeah, yeah it, you know in the sense that it was uh um monarchy as a political form is is compatible with capitalism it's just a particular you know 
a particular yes. a particular form of monarchy and move from a feudal form i mean we see this in the french revolution you know cromwell you know is analogous to napoleon bonaparte in certain ways exactly yeah it, and, in, it, and in both cases there's kind of there's a lot of two steps forward one step back there's um you know in, in france and and in england we we in, in england we went through kind of cromwell and um uh, and, and then, so then we had the restoration of Charles II, who was son of Charles I, who'd been executed. Um, and then the Glorious Revolution, which removed Charles and brought in William of Orange. And that's really when we moved to a constitutional monarchy. So um, in France, they had um, the July monarchy, they had a, the Bourbon Restoration, didn't they? The July monarchy, the Second Republic, Second Empire, which was. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte, wasn't it? And then the Third Republic from 1871. And in both cases, actually, there was there was a flashpoint where the workers actually tried to get it get in on the act. Um, so in France, you get the Paris Commune, and in England, you get the Banbury Mutiny and the Levellers and the Putney debates and these things where people who have actually done all the fighting are, are kind of saying, right, so where's our reward then? And, and the bourgeoisie is saying, "Sorry, guys, we, you know this wasn't." Let's not go too far. Let's not go. Let's <laughs> yeah. let's. We just yeah. yeah. So let's let's talk about that. So the the you know one of the uh, aspects of any political revolution is that it you know unleashes a variety of different social and political forces, and often creates these alliances of convenience between different social forces. And also the process of revolution itself radicalizes people in certain directions. And the English Civil War was a you know particularly bloody conflict that took place over an extended period of time. One of the reasons the king got himself executed was because originally they put him, they arrested him, and they I think they stuck him on the Isle of Wight, and he ran away and people were worried that, you know, there was going to be a second civil war. So this was an ex violent, extended uh, conflict that took place. And of course, the political forces that won out in the end were kind of the elite parliamentary forces that wanted to have some kind of limited monarchy based on the compromises that had been enacted before. Uh, the war, the reason they didn't execute Charles was that they just wanted to, him to accept the kind of compromises that ha, that they demanded prior to the Civil War. And then, of course, you know, you have the regicide and then, of course, the parliament is kind of repressed and we see the emergence of the Lord Protector, uh, Protectorship and then a restoration of the monarchy. So that's kind of the brief uh, history. But throughout that, you know, uh, leadership of society remains within this kind of landlord capitalist uh you know progressive elements of the old feudal elites those are the guys who are dominating society but you mentioned a couple of names there the putney debates the uh, the levelers there's the diggers there's other sources what was the radical wing of the english revolution so so it was as you alluded to earlier it it was um it had a religious aspect to it in that um, the monarchy was kind of wavering between Catholicism and high church Anglicanism, which is kind of Catholicism, but without the religion, if that makes sense. <laughs> Anglicanism is like, uh, it's like Christianity. Catholicism, but the king's the doing it. You, you get all the ritual and, and everything else, but you don't actually have to bother believing in anything really. And then the nonconformists were 
the, the Protestants, much more like European Protestants who had um, kind of religious reasons for 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 not going along with the, with um, Roman Catholicism, Catholicism. Um, and so those those uh, nonconformists were kind of quite they were the most radical um, section of society. Uh, they were often persecuted more than more than anyone else. Um, and they included they, they included some people that were relatively conservative in their political views, given that they were on the on 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 that on on the more sort of progressive wing of things. But they also included some very radical groups such as the level uh, the levelers, the diggers, the ranters, um, and these groups really. It's it's really interesting when you read their political pamphlets and things. Is that they're still they don't really know what they want. They're still working it out. What they know is what they've got isn't fair. Uh, they talk a lot about um, natural rights, but they also talk about the rights of freeborn Englishmen. So, um, at a very very occasionally, even women get a shout as well. But that's that's not um, usual at this time. But but the being born in England seems to is a, is a thing. That's it's like I've got civil rights. I'm in this society. I've got civil rights. And and when they're talking about the franchise. They start saying, they saying, well, if you know, every every freeborn Englishman should have a vote. We shouldn't be governed by people that we don't give consent to. And so, on the one hand, you've got people opposing that, just kind of like this is, you know, you. I think there. I mean, one of the arguments is uh, you don't have a stake in society. If you're a property owner, you should have a vote. But if all you own is stuff you can carry on or carry about on your own back, you could just go and live in another kingdom if you don't like what's happening here. So you don't have any. Don't have anything to lose you don't have any stake in society so you don't deserve a vote but there's another opposition to that which comes from Ireton, who's a, a general in the parliamentarian army who's actually cromwell's son-in-law and he kind of he sees where this is going he's saying well hang on a minute if you're demanding an equal vote on the basis of being a, a freeborn englishman how long is it going to be before you start demanding an equal amount of land and an equal house and you could take the clothes off my back and steal my money and have my tobacco and everything else and what how could i stop you if you if you have a right to it just as much as i do just by virtue of you being english where will this end and i and it's interesting because that's you know that's quite he sees that um argument quite you know this is 16 before before uh, yeah. before even the radicals have fully worked out that argument sure yeah i mean they all they're asking for is a vote and he's going you know hang on a minute slippery slope <laughs> this is the start of the slippery slope which which indeed you know if you look at the the, the process the progress of you know the ideology under capitalism that's that's where we've got to is that is that we've got the vote and now we're saying hang on a minute we, you know what about the resources what about the stuff that actually would would give produce a free and equal society You've got to hand over some of the some of the stuff that that you have somehow accumulated, but can't really justify your ownership of. So you know, so this really is, I mean, like these ra uh, radical groups, like the Levelers, and there's there's differences between them. I mean, uh, the Leveler, the Diggers are more kind of like um, squ squatters. Would that be a, a good? Term? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they're kind of like taking control of land and and you know setting up communes whereas yeah. the levelers are far more of a kind of overtly political movement in the sense that you know they've really they're, they're moving towards this kind of universalism the kind of basis for you know modern mass democracy which is the notion that there is a nation 
and everybody yeah. in that nation deserves free uh you know like uh, the same civic not only the same rights and response uh, rights which perhaps the higher elements within the uh, english elite would be happy to concede like a universality in front of the law but yeah. also demanding uh, a universality in terms of political rights and participation in the institutions of parliamentary democracy so whereas the kind of parliamentary wing of the uh, the elite parliamentary wing of the civil war was pushing to for this kind of civic uh, uh, um, civic equality but not political equality yeah. the level was were the kind of next uh, step to that which of course incited a kind of reaction amongst those uh, property owning elites like Ayrton who were where is this going to where is this going to get it and they must have been specifically terrified because you know this was not just randos this was their army they built an army they built a really efficient it was called the new model army and it was a really efficient fighting machine and now suddenly they hadn't been paid for weeks the army were demanding all their back pay um, and the threat was that they would send them to Ireland any agitators they would send it off to, to an Irish campaign which would be a lots more fighting and no chance of being discharged and going home but also a really there was, a, it was some really brutal fighting going on in Ireland so so it's kind of like the threat of being sent to the Eastern Front in World War Two so that kind of you know if you don't behave this is what we'll, we'll do and they tried to split up the, the regiments so, mm -hmm. to, so that they would but but actually they tried to split them up to prevent the spread of these ideas but actually they just facilitated the spread of these ideas by spreading out all the people that were, that were talking about them and, and and creating pamphlets and things but I, I and eventually they you know Cromwell was very underhand and he he ended up murdering the leaders of the levelers in Bertha Churchyard in um, 1649 I think but you have so, a, so you have a situation it's like kind of like the russian revolution you have a, you have at the end of the war a situation of dual power i mean trotsky in his his, history of the russian revolution <coughs> explicitly makes that comparison that you have a dual power emerging between the leaders of the army and right. and, and and the rank and file of the army yeah. and, and and this leads to the putney debates is that correct that's right yeah so the, so the the king has been captured and they think the war is over and they it's kind of amazing that they even bothered having them but but the army had been agitating had been coming out with these pamphlets kind of a, they'd written a kind of a, a, a constitution and and, the, and and written all their demands and so Cromwell agreed that he would send representatives one of which was Ireton to listen to their demands and the the meetings went on for about 12 days something like that and were minuted but the minutes were then lost and they were only found in 1890 so it kind of no, no one even knew this happened this this whole thing had happened until then but uh, well i guess they knew it happened but they didn't really know the the, the the details of it but they were quite closely minuted so you can read these debates now and it's it was one of the things that's really interesting about that is that most of the political debate we hear now people have rehearsed everything they say they know that that what position they're coming from they know what they're going to say but in the Putney debates, you really get the sense people were kind of feeling around. They were genuinely saying, well, what if we do this? And what if we ask for that? And where will that lead? And why shouldn't we demand this? And they were kind of feeling their way through this. These were people that had, um, they kind of talked amongst themselves in, the, in within the levelers, but then, uh, and obviously the, 
the um, parliamentary establishment, which was mainly the gentry, they they'd done the same thing, but actually confronting each other's ideas. It's really interesting to read people actually getting this this some kind of reality check for the first time that working out in real time. Yeah, it's got it was it's kind of a really um, interesting situation. So so that's one of the reasons why I want to kind of write something a, a, about this whole thing is the 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 it, the fact is it's very human and it's very real when you read the the Putney debates and it's much less performative than most of the political discussions we see now, now and much less rehearsed um and but but what happens but the problem is then after about 12 12 days into this process the king escapes and then everything goes back well we're, we're back on a war footing now because the king has escaped and he's gone off and rallied his army somewhere and now it's like we haven't got time for this anymore you've just got to get back to back to the fighting and then Cromwell the next time there's a respite in the fighting or the next the next point where they know that they're you know that they're winning they've basically got the war won Cromwell doesn't sort of arrange a debate you know the resumption of these debates he just goes and executes the leaders of the levelers um in in Burford churchyard so he he kind of saw the that the writing he well, not that the writing was on the wall he did he just didn't want to engage with this with this conversation about what might come next because as far as he was concerned what might, what would come next was him being the new king really so um and you know and which he then was or effectively obviously he didn't have a coronation or anything but he was the he was dictator um and until his death and then not long after that we get the restoration um i, I kind of wonder so i think um i'm assuming that that many many of the, the people watching this are not overly familiar with 17th century English history so I think there's there's a few things um and I and we keep referring to things and I I, I kind of I don't want to be um I, I don't want to patronize anyone but I don't want to make the assumption that people know what we're talking about all the time as well so so there's another um uh development called which which in English history is called the glorious revolution is it so is that something that that needs me to should i you know we should probably explain what the glorious a, a, revolution a, 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 a quick. is so after so charles ii was restored the monarchy was restored with with um charles ii he had no legitimate children so his younger brother james the second was going to be was was his successor and kind of you know people were, were okay with this and then there was a problem which which was that james's first wife died and his he then married an italian princess who was a catholic and converted to catholicism and this was really upsetting for all the all the all the protestants that had kind of spent the last 20 years engineering their you know the the, the, the situation to, to something they liked so they they feared that then james and then and then even more than that then uh, james and his new wife had a, a son who was a Catholic and would then become the next king. So they were kind of back. As far as they were concerned, this was putting us back kind of 150 years or whatever. So they just, you know, this was too much for them to stand really. And I so, think it's I think it's important to kind of uh, a footnote in here that Catholicism in Britain became very much a kind of, uh, was antithetical to the emerging English slash British nationalism in that, uh, you know, it was against this idea of the freeborn Englishman. Uh, yeah. Catholics were often uh, presented as, you know, 
part of this like a tyrannical hierarchy. Catholic monarchs were seen as tyrants and autocrats, and the and English it, and it as as a as a uh, um, as very closely tied into the idea of absolute monarchy. Mm -hmm. Whereas we'd got this kind of very tentative, very fragile kind of agreement with Charles II that he could be king again, but he's, you know, don't take the piss, mate. It's just, you yeah. can be king, but, but steady on there. And then the idea of then James II and then his son, and then that would tie him, that would mean that his son would have the backing maybe of, of the Pope, of, of the French kings, this kind of thing. And that, that they, they found this really threatening to, to the, the progress that they've made. So they, they cast around and they, and they settled on uh, William of Orange in uh, the Netherlands, who he had a claim to the throne, I guess. He was um, James's nephew and his son-in-law. So, he, you know, he, he did. It wasn't like they just went and found somebody on the streets. They got somebody else that was that, that kind of fitted the bill. And they managed, they, they invited him to come and be king, really. And he landed with a huge army and James fled and they just crowned William. And it was kind of a bloodless coup. There were, there were some skirmishes, I think, but there was very little fighting. He was there's kind a of fighting to be king and showed There's a statue of him in Hull. Uh, we've got a big, Is there? Right. We've got That's a gold statue of yeah, King Billy. He didn't yeah. land in Hull, though, did he, when he came I don't to... think he did. I don't think he did land in Hull. But Hull was always a stronghold of parliamentary right. power. Uh, you know, they shut the door in the king's face and told him to bugger off. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, it was a, a, a key, a key, uh, like emerging capitalist mercantile yeah. center. So it was a uh, very pro, uh, King Billy, but I think, you know, it's, I think that's really important because, uh, so people aren't confused the glorious revolution, the word revolution in the glorious revolution refers to the old usage of the term revolution, which was a restoration of the old order which the glorious revolution wasn't really it was it was kind of but it was kind of a i guess a confirmation of that political compromise that had developed following the end of like cromwell's son leaving the stuart monarchy returning but there was like a kind of constitutional compromise and then that was kind of worked out who's who's wearing the trousers was worked out in the glorious revolution where it was like, yes. well, parliament is actually going to decide who the king is. Yes. And, and, and William was invited to be king on condition that he accepted that parliament was sovereign. And then from that point, from 1688 onwards, we had the bill of rights, which gave, um, which gave parliament a, a lot more powers and unlimited the king's powers significantly. But it was also clear that from that point onwards, Parliament was just then going to gradually gain more and more power and the monarchy were going to cede more and more power to Parliament. And within Parliament, the House of Commons gained more and more power and the House of Lords, the power of the House of Lords diminished over time until 1911, when it finally was kind of really reduced to, to, to its current role, really, um, which, which is quite limited. Um, so there was... There, there were there was this process through this kind of upheaval lasted from 1642 when the civil war started to 1688 when we ended up three monarchs later or whatever it was three monarchs and a dictator later we ended up with parliament being sovereign and the king being not quite you you, you would never have 
said to him that he his role was to be subservient he's, he's, to Parliament, but that was really the writing for that was on the wall, and that's where we were going. He was conceptualized as being part of Parliament, right? I mean, that's yeah, the yeah. British constitutional order is kind of the opposite of the American constitutional order, where you have what we call in Britain the fusion of powers, where you know everything is historically located within par Parliament. So the king formed part of the body of parliament, I guess, which was a kind of face-saving measure uh, yes. for the monarchy. And, and the monarch still has to give royal assent to any, and no, nothing can become law in the UK until now King Charles III has signed the, 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 the bill into being an act. But it's, you know, if he said no, then there would be a constitutional crisis and that, that, that nicety would be removed. So he's always just going to sign it. And um, as you've no, as, you, as you pointed out, whenever constitutional crises have happened, they've for much of the period from eighteen uh, uh, from sixteen eighty eight onwards, they've those crises have been resolved in the uh, in favor of the House of Commons. So you yeah. mentioned the uh, the the constitutional crisis in nineteen eleven, where the Lords attempted to block several liberal reforms, and basically you had a constitutional crisis and the prime minister was like well you know what i'll just appoint as many yeah. lords as it takes and so the the, the crisis is uh, uh being resolved so there has you know like there has been a kind of evolutionary change over over time you know the anglo-saxon world often likes to pride itself on like gradual reform and things mm -hmm. like that but you know that's kind of i mean in britain's case ignores the entire chaotic 48 year yeah. period uh, of civil war and restoration and glorious revolution. I mean, in America, it's also like you had a revolution and then you had a civil war. Yeah, so you know, it's yes. not. Yeah. It's not like it's always uh, peaceful. So, the English Civil War is kind of like a birthplace of a lot of different ideas in modern politics. Yeah, yeah and I think it's important to see it as as Hill does as as part of the the capitalist revolution, um, and to yeah, English people don't, as as we were saying before, before we came on air. You know, English people like to say that we're, we, you know, English capitalists like to say we don't we don't like revolutions. They're 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 not a very English thing. And when you point out to them actually that that the process by which they got all the stuff that they've now got, or they the system that they they're now defending came about, was a revolution as well. Then that that puts them in a more difficult position because they instead of just saying I don't like revolutions. They've got to say why they like the revolution that gave them a lot of power, but they don't like one that would mean they might have to share that power out. And, and by power, we then obviously mean not just political power, but economic power as well. I, I, I think as well, because we've talked a lot about the kind of political machinations of the 17th century, but I think it's important as to go back and, and restate what, what we were saying earlier, which is that this is like a political flashpoint. In, in the historical materialist conception of the transition from feudalism into capitalism, the, the important processes are the long processes of technological development and economic change, and then changes in economic relations, which lead to changes in social and political arrangements. The changes in social and political arrangements are the ones that involve the fighting, so they get the most attention. But that doesn't mean they're the most important changes. And I think one thing I was, I kind of, alluded to earlier is the if you look at enclosure which is so it's a really important part of um 
the transition from feudalism to capitalism. So um, before capitalism, private property is kind of a different thing. It doesn't, it's not like it is now. It's not like it is under capitalism. These people who owned huge tracts of land also had numbers of tenants who they were responsible for. They couldn't just say, go away, I'm not, I'm not feeding you, I don't have any work. Um, they had to kind of, they, they had a responsibility to them. And those people also had customary rights. Uh, they had rights to graze animals on the common or to collect firewood from the woods or to dig peat or to fish in the rivers or whatever it was. And between this kind of tiny allotment or plot of land that goes with their house and the right to use these common lands, they could kind of eke out a living. And this was, the, you know, this was a kind of a society where change happened very slowly. People had rents that were, they had tenancies that were given in numbers of lifetimes because they would be passed down through the family. And rents were kind of token amounts. They reflected a, a social status. You paying your rent to your landlord just was just an illustration to everyone that you were their social inferior. They were there, they didn't reflect any kind of um, return in investment on owning the land or anything like that. And as we as people started to realise, actually, I could you know I could evict these people and put sheep here. The wool trade is taken off. I can build a fence around my hand. I can evict these people. And that does two things. One, it gives me a sheep pasture where I can grow loads of sheep. And two, it means there's a load of people that have no means of survival who are going to need some work. And look, there's a textile factory up the road and that, you know, we can we can come to some arrangement there or I can build a textile factory up the road. I'm, I'm kind of massively simplifying, obviously. Yeah, but, you know. I mean, because I think people people sometimes misinterpret it, misinterpret the meaning of aristocratic titles in Britain, uh, because you know, even in even in place like France, there was a difference between the nobility of the sword and the nobility of the pen, like the the kind mm -hmm. of uh, traditional medieval families who were knights at one point, and the kind of newer uh, uh, people who got titles from the king in more recent times. In Britain, you know, we have aristocratic titles, but if you look at the aristocracy, a big proportion of the aristocracy like comes into being in the 19th century as capitalists, either by yeah. marrying into like impoverished aristocratic families. There's a kind of fusion between the kind of aristocratic elite and the 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 rising English capitalist class. And that even has a prehistory with many aristocrats shifting from like this traditional feudalistic relationship with the peasantry to a kind of becoming titled cap capitalist with aristocratic uh, uh, titles like aristocracy aristocracy as a system isn't just like oh you have titles all societies have titles right yes. america yeah. has titles general professor blah blah, blah. Yeah. so you know every society has has titles uh but you know we're, when we talk about aristocracy we're talking about this like sh shift from this like traditional mode of society where you have these mutual obligations to kind of those are and Marx talks about this in Communist Manifesto, this all like obliterated for just pure exploitation. Yes, yeah. And I think, you know, I've I've written in um How Capitalism Ends, I'll talk about left and right and kind of characterize the right as being split between this kind of you get these these people on the right that almost wish feudalism could be reinstated. So Jacob Rees-Mogg would, you know, mm -hmm. like nothing more, would he? 
Um, but then you also get this more kind of like uh, mercantile kind of um, banking and financial elites who are much more kind of forward looking and much more kind of ruthless about everything. But actually, these two characteristics for most people on the right, they both exist in them somewhere. They're not they're, it's not a bunch of a bunch of kind of depressed aristocrats and it's separately a bunch of mm -hmm. um, international financiers. These are kind of they're merged. They're very much merged into, into in terms of communities, but they're actually merged into each person as well. They're not um, they're, they're distinct interests, but those interests are held by pretty much everyone on the right in, in different proportions, maybe. And capitalism but, um, can capitalism can repurpose aristocratic hierarchy yes. as a, as a methodology to ma maintain social order in a changing in a society that is constantly being disrupted yes. by uh, capitalist innovation. Uh, well, so capitalists, it, they, they're, they're very keen on meritocracy, aren't they? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but but not so keen that they actually want their kids to be ever, anywhere near a level playing field at any point. You know, they, they kind of they have to lean on this aristocracy because really they don't, they don't want meritocracy. They don't want everything to be the way they say they want it. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the people that are kind of more of the kind of nostalgic aristocratic men are, um, you know, they actually they, they're more they honest. feel like that, that, that sentimentally, but they still want the money, <laughs> you know, and owning a stately home isn't really going to bring them much money in. So they, you know, they need to kind of they all need to compromise and work together. And they, the, the problem we have is that they do that very well, whereas the duality that I then talk about on the left, we're just really terrible at working with each other. They, you know, so and, and that's one of the advantages that the right have over us is that they they put their differences aside for the sake of defeating the left. And, and the They're left. the Anglicans and we're the nonconformists, <laughs> yeah. you know. And yeah, I think that's uh, so, you know, we're getting up to the last 10 minutes and I don't want to take too much of your time. What do you think? What would you say, like, uh, the lessons perhaps of the English Revolution are? And, you know, why is it significant historically? I mean, like, I would say for first, you know, just as a first thing, it's like, without an English Revolution, there's no American Revolution. Like, the ideology of the American Revolution is predicated very much on that concept of freeborn Englishmen, of yeah. counterposing. And very possibly of, French Revolution as well. Yeah. So, no, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think they were all coming one way or another. Capitalism was going to happen, um, and and it happened first of all in England, um, and and what then it happened in France and America, and it was exported throughout Europe, and and obviously now it's global, or it has global influence. But we, I think, I think one of the one of the lessons is really that actually things can change quite quickly if you know if if, if material can as material conditions develop you can go from looking at like quite a hopeless position in um i think 1629 james suspended parliament mm -hmm. uh no sorry it would have been charles charles first charles. suspended parliament for 11 years so so the gentry the, the and the emerging but they were the gentry were kind of the the House of Commons they were represented in the House of Commons. That was kind of the political wing of the of the emerging bourgeois interest. Had no representation in the country at all. They couldn't they couldn't really do anything until Charles ran out of money and had to get Parliament together again to to, to try and raise taxes. So you know things that they went from being in a position where they just seemed to have hit a brick wall and, and weren't going anywhere to a position where actually. 
um, they were pushed enough that they that they then started to fight back, and they they had enough kind of they they had over the period that they had um, they'd amassed enough economic power that in that fight they turned out you know they they came, they were the winners they, they came out of that victorious oh, although it you know there was a lot of bloodshed and it took a couple of decades um, but I think I guess as well uh, another thing that we can learn is that. Um, I, I suppose you could say one thing is that the power of the state is is really important, but um, I'm not. I, I think that that's that's something that was true then, but I don't think that's necessarily definitively true. Um, it's certainly true that before 1640, the state was resisting things like enclosure, and after 1688, it was kind of a, a, it, it continued. It, it kind of quadrupled in speed and, and was totally sanctioned by the by the state and done through. Well, that's um, that's an, I think that's a really a really important point i mean you you said perhaps capitalism was inevitable but you know the english revolution is not insignificant in that sense it, it, it perhaps capitalism or the shift i mean we have in human history had shifts towards more mercantile societies before in china and other parts of europe and they have been stomped out by political yeah political development so the English Revolution is not uh, is not merely a kind of manifestation of this transformation, but it is. Uh, I would I would go further and say it's something that facilitated, like you said, like a quant a, a qualitative leap in in yeah. where capitalism could do, where the fetters on 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 that you know you know capitalism's existed always, like but when you know. When when the king didn't want to pay the Jews back his money, throw them down York Castle, kill them all, right? Uh, but you know that I think I think it's important because it's a manifestation, but also something that drives it forward. Uh, which well, had I, it I not happened, the, yeah, I think I think the difference is so you're always going to get um, groups of people who want to change things, mm -hmm. and the the significant thing is is what makes that group of people successful not just in seizing political power, but in establishing them themselves as the dominant class in the new economic structure and being able to then survive and become quite a resilient economic structure that survives into the future. And, you know, if, if I mean, there, were, there have been things in England before as well and, and all over Europe where people had kind of tried to resist absolute monarchy. But the difference with the English Civil War was that the people trying to do it had got this economic power that mm -hmm. they built up that the, 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 the feudal aristocracy, the aristocracy and the, and the feudal hierarchy were powerless to resist because their power had been waning since about 1500. And the power of these, these kind of emerging bourgeoisie had been increasing. And, but that was kind of economic power and resources. And the diff, so the difference, the reason what, you know, if, if they'd have, if things had gone differently on some of the battlefields in the 1640s and the, the, feudal aristocracy had won the civil war that wouldn't have just been oh well we're not having capitalism then that they, they, they had, those people had so much power that eventually they would have come back and maybe the, maybe there'd have been another war or maybe they would have just been able to kind of exert their influence in other ways but they would we would still have moved on we that we the, the future always wins in the end doesn't it it's you know there was this kind of nothing is inevitable in history but you get a thing that once once capitalism had got started, once people could see how much power and 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 wealth they could they could gain from that, 
they weren't just going to go oh well we, we you know that was unsuccessful let's not bother doing that anymore there are always going to be people trying to do that and eventually those people are going to have enough power to succeed so i think i think that's another lesson is that actually it's much more about what's going on economically than it is about what's going we need to recognize what economic power is and and how to kind of control that and and what where the levers are because that's although political power is important if you don't have the economic power behind you the political power isn't going to last that you can you can seize power people people there are coups every now and then in the world but if you don't have the economic power behind you you're not going to last so i think that the the lesson from that is that we need to look at what's going on in the world materially and what's going on in terms of people's economic circumstances and economic relations ships with each other and how we can use those that how we can leverage that to kind of to kind of move forward in combination with taking political you know having some political power too but just having political power on its own is never going to be enough okay well steve thank you so much for your time uh, anything you want to plug before we leave um, I will. I, I need to say, yeah, my books, my new book, How Capitalism Ends, is now out. Um, it's, well, as I speak, you can probably get it in time for Christmas, but by the time this goes out, that might well be a, a thing of the past. Maybe, but, uh, maybe you can get it. will be there in the new year. So. Yeah, for a new year present, perhaps. Yeah. But I'll put yeah. a link to it in the, uh, uh, in the description. Cool. And, uh, yeah, well, uh, hope to have you on again at some time in the near future, Steve. And as we say on this, always a pleasure. We are out.